Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. Tremble before him all the earth. And so as we come to prayer, we will, as is our recent practice, share in a guided prayer and then join together at the end in the Lord's Prayer in whatever language or form is the most natural for us. So let's pray together. We come with joy to meet our Lord. Joyful God, whose playful creativity is seen in the wonderful diversity of the natural world, we, your children, gather to offer our praise and thanks. For long-necked giraffes and duck-billed platypuses, for bounding kangaroos and curly-tailed seahorses, for stripy zebras and spotted jaguars, black and white pandas, and multicoloured peacock tails. For snow-capped mountains and lush green forests. For sandy beaches and rolling ocean waves. For spiky cacti and Venus flytraps. Sweet-scented cultivars and hedgerow daisies. Why, Lord... Is it that we delight in the diversity of plants and animals and environments, but are less comfortable with human diversity? Your image, glimpsed in a face with brown, green, blue or grey eyes. Your hands with gnarled fingers, missing fingers, damaged fingers. Your children born in golden, olive, ebony or ivory skin. People of all shapes and sizes, all ages, and everyone loved by you just as they are, just as we are. Because we are those imperfect people, those others who can be rejected or judged for what we are or are not. And because we are those who judge and reject those who are not what we are. Forgive us our prejudices. Forgive us our narrowness. Free us from guilt. So that we may love as we are loved so that we may live as citizens of your kingdom, for which we now pray in the words Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
We have two readings this morning, the first from Leviticus in the Old Testament and the second from the Gospels. Let us listen for the word of God. The Lord told Moses to say to the whole Israelite community, you must be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You are not to pervert justice either by favoring the poor or by subservience to the great. You are to administer justice to your fellow countrymen with strict fairness. Do not go about spreading slander amongst your kin. Do not take sides against your neighbor on a capital charge. I am the Lord. You are not to nurse hatred towards your brother or sister. Reprove your fellow countrywomen, frankly, and so you will have no share in her guilt. Never seek revenge or cherish a grudge towards your kinsfolk. You must love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. And then in the Gospel, as told by Matthew... Jesus has been telling parables in the temple. Then the Pharisees went away and agreed on a plan to trap him in argument. They sent some of his followers to him, together with members of Herod's party. Teacher, they said, we know you are a sincere man. You teach in all sincerity the way of life that God requires courting no man's favour, whoever he may be. So give us a ruling on this. Are we or are we not permitted to pay taxes to the Roman emperor? Jesus was aware of their malicious intention and said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to catch me out? Show me the coin used for the tax. They handed him a silver piece. Jesus asked, whose head is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. He said to him, then pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Taken aback by this reply, they went away and left him alone. The same day, Sadducees, who maintain that there is no resurrection, came to him and asked, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and provide an heir for his brother. We know a case involving seven brothers. The first married and died, And he was without issue, and his wife was left to his brother. The same thing happened with the second, and then the third, and so on with all seven. Last of all, the woman died, 
At the resurrection, then, whose wife will she be, since they had all married her? Jesus answered, How far you are from the truth. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In the resurrection, men and women do not marry. They are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you never read what God himself said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were amazed at his teaching. Hearing that he had been silenced by the Sadducees, the Pharisees came together in a body, and one of them tried to catch him out with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Everything in the law and the prophets hangs on these two commandments. Yesterday, I was at a workshop, masterclass, thingamajiggery, about preaching. And it was very interesting, uh, nothing I hadn't heard before, but they were very much into how we go about engaging with the scriptures. And do we always have to do an expository sermon? Does it always have to be 20 minutes or 40 minutes of line-by-line explanation? Or are we free to do other things? Well, I kind of felt that was a bit old hat, but there we go. Today, we're going to do other things. We're going to begin by doing an uncollection. As the bag reaches you, I would ask you to reach in and take a coin and then pass the bag on to the next person. And if we can do that reasonably quickly, that will be great. Otherwise, I'll have kind of got to the point that we need the coins before they've gone round. Uh, Not very often you get invited in church to help yourself to money out of the collection bag. It might be tempting sometimes just to reach in and and grab a coin or several, uh, but we'll do that. The stories we heard this morning all are part of Matthew's Holy Week narrative. Part of the story of what happens between Palm Sunday and the clearing of the temple and the events of Good Friday and Easter. And it's perhaps helpful to keep that in mind as we ponder these three stories. Uh, Those who were at the Holy Week services might recall we did some playing around with the first of these stories on one of the evenings. Um, It kind of starts off similar but isn't exactly the same. So here is a conundrum, a puzzle for you. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Is this a question about taxation per se? Or is it about the relationship of devout Jews with the occupying Roman state? 
or for us, about the relationship between Christian believers and the so-called secular authorities. Is it lawful? Does God allow devout Jews to give financial support to a regime that may not always operate in a way consistent with their faith? Does God require... Can we pass the bag, not the coins? (laughs) Thank you. Does God require... um, Christians to pay local and national taxes to the authorities that may choose to employ those funds in a way that we don't find according with our beliefs and values? And is it a question we even ask ourselves? Should we pay taxes? Jesus says, and we know this very well, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. But that's not entirely helpful. How do we distinguish between the two of them? In fact, can we distinguish between the two? Because unlike first century Jews, we don't have two currencies. We don't come to the door there and hand over our money and swap it for the Hillhead Baptist coinage, which is a good thing, really. There is no requirement to divest ourselves of that which is secular and grubby, and replace it with that which is sacred and clean. Actually, the offering that we make is in the self-same currency that we pay for our groceries, our concert tickets, our petrol, many of which include an element of tax to Caesar through VAT and other tax duties. So what about this question? Is it lawful to pay secular taxes? to help fund the state and hence the wider society of which we're part? There's not a direct answer to that one. Rather than addressing the legality and uh, acceptability of the taxes, Jesus seems to expect his followers to be obedient citizens, paying their way. So is that it? Is that the end of the discussion? I don't think it is. Because the underlying questions about relationship between church and state, between faith and society, about paying our way, are still valid today. There have always been Christians and others who have refused to pay part or all of their taxes as a protest against some aspect of government policy. Whether that's defence spending, laws about abortion or who may marry whom. And where they do so, they generally express this as obeying a higher law. Are they right? Or should they find some other way of expressing their protest, ways that don't end up with the clerical staff in the tax office or the court officials having to spend time and money to chase their tax arrears, money that probably could be put to good use? From time to time, Christians and others say, well, we'd actually happily pay extra taxes if it was spent on health or education. Well, I don't know about you, but I've actually yet to put my money where my mouth is on that one. Are we, I wonder, more active against those things we dislike or oppose than we are on the ones that we feel reflect our value of justice and equality? We don't have time today to ponder the rights and wrongs of the church accepting exemption from VAT on certain things. 
from property rates. We've yet, we haven't got time to explore whether gift aid, on which we um, depend to quite a degree, is justified. Should we take money back from the state to support our churches, our way of being, that could be employed for other purposes? Complicated questions that we haven't got time to think about, but that we should at some point. No answers today, but I'd just like you to take the coin or coins that you um, chose to take from our uncollection. There's no great big ones. I think the biggest were 20 pences. But what are you going to do with that coin? Because it's yours to take away. And in case you're wondering, they were my coins, not the church's. It hasn't cost the church a penny. These came out of my jar that we all have with random coins slung into it. But what are you going to do with that coin? Are you going to drop it into the offering when that comes around and make our counters have a lot more work counting up all these five Ps because, hey, it's not worth it and we'll just chuck it in anyway? Well, we put it in a charity tin in a shop because, after all, every little helps and Tesco's don't have the uh, copyright on that statement. Or are we going to put it in our pocket or our purse and just add it to what we spend on a coffee, VAT at 20%, or petrol, uh, fuel duty, I believe, is currently 58 pence a litre, or alcohol, which apparently has a 75 to 8.5% tax levy on it, presumably before VAT. Jesus said, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. But scripture also says this, all things come from you, O God, and of your own do we give you. think you've turned into children today isn't it because I'm giving you loads of bits of bobs of rubbish I'd like to invite you now to take a knotted string just take one and uh, pass them along and I'd like you to keep this if you would be willing to when you leave we don't really want to be clearing up a whole pile of uh, bits of string and we just share those out as we move on to think about the second question The question that was quite clearly a trick question. Teacher. The law says that if a man dies childless with no heir to inherit the land and continue the family line, then it's the duty of the next brother in line to marry the widow and have sons for him. And now there was a woman who worked her way through all of seven brothers in a family but still had no children and then she died. Whose wife will she be at the resurrection? Knotty questions, that's kind of the hint as to why I gave you a bit of string with a knot in it. Knotty questions of this kind can be fun to play around with in the context of a theology seminar or a Bible study and discussion group. 
offering us a framework to play around with nuances of scripture and, and to tease out aspects of our theology. You know the kind of thing. Is it morally wrong to steal money in order to pay for life-saving drugs for your child? Or, there are ten people trapped on a desert island and a boat arrives and it can only take five, so which five will you rescue and why? As we play with questions like that, it can help us to listen to another person's perspective, to recognise the complexity of a topic and maybe even to change our own understandings and that is all to the good. But that wasn't what the Sadducees were about when they came with their question to Jesus because they knew fine well what the right answer is. The doctrine to which they subscribed is there is no resurrection, that this life is it and when you die, end of. So the correct answer that Jesus should give should reflect that. They were trying to trap Jesus. They wanted him to tell them what he thought and to say, well, okay, well, based on that, yep, we agree with you and we're interested in you, or nope, we can reject you. Jesus' reply wasn't going to go down very well with those who asked it, not just because of what he said, but because of how he framed it. Wouldn't it have been easy for him to have got drawn into an exchange of proof texts, playing one scripture off against another? Wouldn't it be easy to discuss abstract philosophy or postulate what an ultimate reality might be like? How easy would it have been for him to become drawn into a debate about leveret marriage, this marrying of brothers, about land ownership, about hereditary What Jesus did was every bit as shocking as it was simple. He said, basically, the question you're asking shows that you don't really understand the scriptures and you don't know a fat lot about the power of God. Putting it kind of into more everyday language, he said, oh, I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to have some kind of thought experiment with you so, so you can say, yep, we've got the final answer and, and that's all it is. Because scripture is broader and deeper and more complicated and more wonderful than you can imagine. That God's power is wonderful and more inclusive that you can begin to understand. And actually there are whole thought categories that you haven't yet discovered and may not ever discover. Is this actually a question for us about how we approach reading scripture? About Bible study or listening to sermons? How do we engage in conversations with those friends whose views differ from our own on some aspect of belief or understanding? Do we fall into the trap of assuming that we, whoever we are, know the final answer, even as we ask the question? So you ask somebody what they think, but you know what the answer is, so you're kind of testing them out. Do we tie ourselves in knots trying to justify why we believe this and don't believe that? And here's one for you. Do we come to church to measure the soundness of the preacher or to listen for God's voice. 
Do I do that when I'm sitting where you are? There are some questions, such as what is heaven like, for which we're not ever going to find satisfactory answers this side of eternity. And the openness to engage with such questions open-mindedly and with a willingness to be surprised is probably good. It's good to think about things. But if we are kind of playing games with each other as some kind of a shibboleth, and if you don't know what a shibboleth is, go and look it up when you get home, as some kind of shibboleth as to whether you're sound or not sound, if that's what we're doing, then we're missing the point because that's not what it's about. Jesus said to those who came with a trick question to suss out his soundness, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. send those out in all directions that would be fantastic the last question that Jesus was asked seemed pretty straightforward didn't it it's the kind of question that you might ask a child in a catechism class the kind of question you might ask a candidate for baptism or church membership it's a kind of orthodoxy 101 question What is the greatest commandment? The equivalent, I think, for many Christian churches today might be, are you saved? Or, what must you do to be saved? This is the stuff that everybody knows from early childhood. As a little boy, Jesus would have recited the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbour as you love yourself. This is the question they came and asked him. 101, basic stuff. Does he know it? Yes, he does. But just in the way that we can slip into unthinking recitation of the Lord's Prayer without thinking about the words, it would be equally possible for a devout Jew to answer that question glibly without thinking about what their life was like. Did their life reflect this great commandment that they claimed to know? Unlike Luke, who uses this question as a vehicle for the story that we know as the Good Samaritan, Matthew, and in fact Mark, allow the question to stand unexplained. Matthew notes that Jesus adds, On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Or, as some contemporary commentators and um, writers have said, This is the law 
Everything else is commentary. You could basically reduce the Bible to two sentences and all the rest is a commentary on it. And as I pondered these words this week, I thought, well, what can I say that I haven't said to you before or other people haven't said to you hundreds of times? Is there anything new to discover? And you know what? I'm not sure there is anything new and exciting I can say about that. Perhaps the one new thing is that we need to keep reminding ourselves of what lies at the heart of the gospel and what it is that Jesus demands of his followers. It's not a new thing, but it's something we go back to again and say, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Because some of Jesus' teaching is desperately demanding. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Hopefully metaphorically, not literally. But the ability to obey Jesus, to follow where he leads, draws us back to this understanding of love that he talks about. A threefold understanding of love for God, for neighbour and for self. But you know that, you've heard that hundreds of times. Elsewhere in scripture, uh, 1 John, for those who want to look it up, we're told that if we don't love our fellow human beings who we can see, it is impossible for us to love God whom we cannot see. It's some pretty stern stuff, frankly, if we take it seriously. The right answer is meaningless unless it's connected to a right attitude and a right behaving. And that doesn't mean we're perfect and we don't make mistakes. Of course it doesn't. But what Jesus is saying is this understanding about love is both the motivator and the litmus test for the way we read scripture and the way we live our everyday lives. It's an approach that is inherently forgiving and seeking forgiveness. It's an approach that wants for others what it wants for itself. An attitude that recognises its own need for divine grace. And as a result of that, tries to be gracious in its own relationships with others who actually sometimes can be quite challenging. It's an attitude that cannot seek to test out somebody else's orthodoxy because it recognises within itself its tendency to heresy or hypocrisy. It's an attitude that is restless, seeking the good of the other who is my neighbour, and at the same time restful, assured of the security of God's love for all creation. Three questions that are taxing of our minds and were used to try and trick Jesus. And here is the answer. Love the God, Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets.
it is our privilege to come together and offer up prayers to God. Let us pray. Lord, we offer up to you our humble prayers. The theme of our service today is based on the perfect way, the laws of justice and mercy and love you gave us. Laws designed to give good and decent lives to all humankind. Laws we can choose to obey or disregard for reasons which seem good to us at the time. Often when we choose wrongly and suffer the consequences, we blame you like rebellious children berating an overstern father. You made the laws too hard, we cry. Lord, in your mercy, help us to choose wisely for our own good and the good of others. We are told to love others as we love ourselves, but it can be hard. Hard to love others who don't speak like us, look like us, follow a different religion, and dare to claim it is the true one, when we know well ours is the only true faith, and why don't they understand that and accept ours? It's hard to love strangers who come to our shores and seem to take for granted their right to enjoy the benefits and way of life our forefathers struggled to gain for us. Why should we share when it is inconvenient socially and economically, just because your law tells us to? That is the reasoning of children, and we pride ourselves on being adults. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, in your mercy, help us to understand you made your laws of compassion and love for all of us, the wise and the foolish, the good and the bad, the trespassers and the trespassed upon. Laws that are not based upon a conditional tit-for-tat arrangement. If you obey them, I will obey. If you don't, I won't. So there. We follow the way of Christ, but do we dare to think that that means others who follow different religions, are not covered by the protection of your laws. If we do not extend love and forgiveness to all, regardless of their response, how can we expect to receive unconditional love and forgiveness in return? Lord, we pray for those in our world crying out in their hearts for the benefits the observance of your laws of love and compassion would bring into their lives. We pray for the hungry, the homeless, the sick, those broken by prejudice and exploitation, those who suffer needlessly from the corruption of their rulers, who squander the revenue which could better their lives those whose existence is ruined by wars fueled by greed 
or fanaticism. If we truly all loved others as we love ourselves, treated others as we would wish to be treated, those horrors would not exist. We pray, Lord, that you help us in our lives to do what we can to carry out the laws you gave us, to love one another, forgive one another, help and respect one another, and so speed on the day when these things become the normal, accepted way of life. Our efforts may be as a drop in the ocean, a grain of sand on a beach, but that ocean and beach are made up of millions of drops and millions of grains uniting together. Lord, we pray mercy on us all in this troubled world. We ask in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to grant our prayers. Amen. We go from here, children of God, forgiven, loved and free, sent back to the demands of this modern city. And we do so knowing that God will bless us with loving, forgiving hearts and courageous discipleship, now and always.